Welcome to the Seven Figure Summit Podcast. I'm Scott Bywater, the founder and CEO of Copywriting That Sells. We help entrepreneurs leverage their email list, websites, funnels, and ads to get high quality leads via strategic copy written in your brand's voice. Just go to copywritingthatsells.com.au to see some of our success stories. Also, don't forget the Seven Figure Summit is always looking for guests. Simply visit podcast.copywritingthatsells.com.au to apply. Welcome, everyone. It's Scott Bywater here, and today I'm here with Steph Hilfer, and I'm extremely excited about talking with Steph today because if you're interested in creating something out of thin air, then Steph has a lot of experience in that. So she can basically visualize what doesn't yet exist and bring it to life, and she's she's built a seven-figure enterprise as a result of doing that. So she's got a background in psychology. She's a master at understanding people's relationships with brands. And while in her own words, she says she may sometimes live in the clouds, surrounded by creative thoughts, she's grounded in solid business strategy that creates a competitive edge to all brands lucky enough to experience her Midas touch. Uh, She's also the founder of her own podcast, Passion on Purpose, Leaders on Center Stage, uh, so welcome, Steph. Great to have you here. Yes, thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. So, and and and, and I hope your dog's okay today. I know he um, didn't he vomit on a on a previous podcast or something. Yes, yes. I have learned since to just let her be outside. Um, <laughs> it's hard here in Washington State, especially this time of year, because it's pouring down rain and it's not the warmest. But for like a 30, 40 hour, whatever podcast, I've just learned peace of mind. She can be outside. She's a dog. She's got fur. Um, Because, yeah, I was so stressed out during that podcast because I didn't know that she needed out that bad. And yeah, lo and behold, she really needed out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's uh, that's great. So so I guess my first question, Steph, is like uh, like you, you you've you've built up quite a sizable enterprise what was it like in the beginning so when you were at the at the bottom of the mountain looking up can you explain what that was like and what that what that felt like yeah you know I think it's very relatable to a lot is my beginning um, because I was doing what everyone says is I was working and then I had my little hustle on the side Right. And so I had a full time job and and anything I do, I never just do it at at par. Right. So my 40 hour a week job was really 60 hour a week. Right. Because that's just how I am. It's how I put my heart into things. So I'm working this 60 hour job um, for the first couple of years of my business and that and then moonlighting. I always say I would moonlight in the middle of, of the from like 6 p.m. until 2 a.m. or later at times, which I know not condoning, but like that's how it was. I would get this business up and running. You know, um, Vim was born six years ago. And so for the first couple of years, uh, it really was me just burning the midnight oil and making this come to life. Um, and then luckily, uh, I mean, it's funny cause I say luckily, and I, I don't, I don't wish that COVID had caused as much harm and hurt as it has, but luckily in that transition of life, um, I still at 2020, I still hit the ground running with my full-time job. Like, cause we were pivoting like there, uh, we had to figure out how in the world do we do business in this new world? 
And then my business was just still trying to hold on. I was as a human, just trying to hold on and get enough sleep and all those things. And, um, luckily after kind of that one really hard, you know, 2020 that we all had, uh, I felt super confident and ready, um, with the work I do more and more businesses were recognizing guys, we have to be present and put ourselves out there in the best way in this new way, digitally, even more so than ever before that while some businesses were slowing down, we were ramping up. And so I was able to take that hard leap and just jump full ship out of that full-time gig and into Vim. Uh, and I haven't looked back since. So that was, I don't know if that, I mean, that's kind of how the transition from, you know, working for someone else to working for yourself happened for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. And what was that like making that, that transition? Was there, was there a lot of fear related to it? Was there like, what was it like emotionally? Yeah. It was funny because I love every company I've ever worked for. Right. And so in retrospect, I look back and at the time, the transition plan we had put together was um, for every person that I would hire, recruit, hire, train and get out and do work. Um, I would lose a day. So the goal was to get five people and that would be my transition plan that I could then leave the company, go full, full force into my business. And at the time I was like, fine, I can do it. No problem. And now looking back, uh, I was like, that was quite the compliment, like quite a validating, you know, plan to be put in place, you know, not to toot my own horn, but it's like, okay, Steph, you want to go? Well, we need five of you. So <laughs> let's get five of you to replace you. Um, and so I think emotionally during that time, it was, there was not a lot of room for, for feeling right. It was just getting it done. Um, and so, but I do remember that, and I know this is not easy for everyone, but I just kept thinking about the worst case scenario. What is the worst case scenario? Really? I think we think as a society or as our own selves, when we're thinking about taking scary risks like quitting a job or making your own business or starting your own business, whatever. I think we jump to the worst case scenario being we're homeless. No one loves us. We're cold and freezing and hungry, you know, and there's a lot of things that has to happen from here to actual worst case scenario before that whole vision of real extreme actually happens. Right. But yet that visual and those fears are really what's prominent for us. And so I just kind of started thinking about that worst case scenario. I have amazing family and friends who love me. I'll never not have a couch. I am gritty. I can get it. Worst case scenario, I go get a job. Really? Worst case scenario, I just get another job. I've done it all my life. And so the, the emotions that I feel like most people would assume that you'd go through, I just, I just started thinking about they're just not as scary as I need to let them feel. Yeah. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and I think that worst case scenario is such a good psychological uh, play. I, I, I also like the, the, like the stoic philosophy of imagining things are worse, like when you're in a tough situation. So, you know, like, let's say you lost a client or whatever, and you just imagine, well, you know, there's, there's, you know, I could have lost my whole business. I could have lost a bit. Yeah, you know, I could have lost a lot more. And then it's a it's it's a very good way of just calibrating 
mm-hmm. where you're at. So yeah, so I, I like a lot of that stoicism work. So so in terms of in terms of your because you've grown it reasonably quickly. Uh, like I know people who've been been in business for decades that haven't sort of grown to that scale. What 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 allowed you to do that? Yeah. I think one of the biggest things was recognizing that what I do has so much more value than what people think. So I do branding. And a lot of times people think, well, branding is a logo. So how in the world are you going to make a logo and scale a business to where you're profiting and have a team of 20, right? Like how is that going to happen with just creating logos? So the very like absolute first thing that we needed to do was really turn into, which we truly are now, is really just a place of education. We have to get people to recognize that what a brand is, is so much more than what you see. And yet it is very important. We can talk about this if we dive into that direction. There's so much about what we see that is important, and I'm not negating that, but there's so much more depth that actually influences those visuals that we need to be tapping into. So really early on, it was, we need to get people out of this mentality that we can hire our cousin who went to graphic design school, pay him 150 bucks for a logo and call our business good, right? We really needed to educate that branding and marketing are not the same. They play well in the sandbox together, but they're not the same. So making that educational differentiation for our own selves, for our team, I'll be honest, for the first three or four years when people would say, oh, what's Vim? What do you do? I'd be like, well, we're a marketing agency. Well, marketing and branding agency. Like I stumbled on my own confident words to say, no, we are a branding agency, you know, and really own that because when someone hears marketing agency, they think, ooh, you run big ads and oh, you do huge things for huge companies. Branding, people were like, a logo. Oh, you do logos and colors and stuff. Um, And so it was really internally and externally really solidifying the difference and owning that lane that that was really pivotal in the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's from a marketing sort of perspective. What about operationally? Because what I've found, particularly in in agency world, is a lot of businesses get they might be brilliant at marketing, but they're constantly putting their foot on the pedal. They're taking it off. Uh, throughout that journey, uh, just because they don't have the operations or they can't handle the the capacity. So, how how did you deal with how did you deal with that? Yeah, so I kind of worked backwards with my hiring, and this was uh, unintentional. I just happened to, to the world and the universe naturally put really great people in front of me. And while I think most people would think, well, my first hire should be like you know entry level VA or something like that, because I can only afford that. I went backwards. My first hire was a COO. No, excuse me. My first hire was my CFO. Um, I knew foundationally, if I wanted to scale, I needed to understand financially what that looked like, how to project, how to like understand some of the things that us business owners don't really want to get into when we start a business, but have to like understanding tax forecasting, tax liability, like really understanding this whole world and thinking about, well, if you want to make X and your product offerings are X, Y, and Z, what do we need to do, right? Actual forecasting and things. So my CFO, he has been the best first investment for myself and my business. 
And then my second hire was my COO. So my chief financial officer and then my chief operating officer. And she, literally, she knows this. I preach all the time to her. My business would not be here if it wasn't for the operational structure process-driven mindset that she helped me create and shift my own mentality around. Um, She was she is and has been pivotal to the actual like creation of our systems and processes, as well as getting me, my stubborn self and my creative head in the cloud self into that mentality that I need in order to step out of being the X, Y, and Z, get it done girl into the CEO, make it happen girl, if that makes sense. So those two hires working backwards and starting at my, my, uh, my chief level level, right. My executive level hires was the most beautiful, unintentional blessing that I happen to give myself. Um, and it, it served me well. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So you went straight to the, cause yeah, I see a lot of people, you know, oh, you need a virtual assistant, that sort of thing. So you went straight to the, the high level, uh, I guess, employees. Was that, was that a full-time thing? Like, did you hire them full-time? Did you hire them part-time? Because right. obviously if you're in the earlier stages of your business, like a, a COO, a good CFO might be 150 grand or exactly. that sort of thing. How did you how did you sort of navigate that? Yeah. In in uh if I would have started my business 10, 15 years ago, I think, you know, I don't think I'd be as successful at all. I'll be honest. People always say, Oh, the best time would have would have been to start 20 years ago. No, the best time for me was when I started. And it's because the world had shifted. And this idea, I almost in the past felt like embarrassed. If I couldn't hire someone full time, then I wasn't a real business, right? And so early on when I had met my COO and my CFO at the different times I did, I learned of their fractional offering. And so they both offer fractional COO and CFO services. And what that means is essentially they're serving you on a like a, a freelance basis, probably another word that makes makes more sense. And so they handle X, X amount of clients, but they are structured in a sense that I, as a smaller at the time, business getting their feet off the ground can still have this foundation with the intention to scale without having to out of pocket, have 300K on payroll right off the bat. And the beautiful model with the fractional models is that as you grow, as they grow, the offerings and the abilities that they can support you with typically can grow with you. Or if you need that or know you're going to need that, seek that out from the beginning, right? Um, so yeah, no, to answer your question, point blank, no. I All of my team, I have two full-time employees, but everyone else on my team, actually three, three full-time employees, everyone else on my team is fractional. Um, and so it's a beautiful model that I think six years ago, um, even I'll be honest, even the beginning of my business, I was almost embarrassed to admit that there was this like stigma in me that was, oh, well, if you don't, if they're not real employees, they're not re- you're not really a business. And that I had to overcome that. Um, and now I celebrate. I am so honest about the way my team is built, where my team is from around the world. I have the most beautiful team who shares their worlds with me. Like I'm a weird geek and I'll have them like screen share and show me their neighborhood. Like I want to know the world and I want to make an impact on the world through what I do. And so my team being world worldly has just allowed that. So sorry, now I'm just geeking out about my team because I love them so much. But um, to, I hope that answers your question a little bit. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, that's that's really interesting. So, so when you look at let's say the COO, because I mean, I myself, like I've got I've got systems, uh, but it's not really my thing. Yeah, and when and I don't really get excited about sitting down for a day and writing out systems and that sort of thing. How did the COO? And I imagine you're probably similar in in many ways. Like it's not your if you're creative, it's generally not your thing to go, oh, I just love getting in there and doing systems. How did that help you? Like, what was the COO? Did they come in? Did they just, did they interview you? Did they shadow you and then just put all the systems together? What was that? What was that process like? Yeah. You know, very early on, she was just really great about saying, tell me everything. Tell me what it is you're struggling with. What is thriving? If you could only do one thing, what would you rinse and repeat every day? you know, really started with some inquisitive conversation and it allowed me to be introspective as well and to really answer honestly some of the things that are working and not working. Um, And then she started looking for repetition and patterns, right? And systems and processes is really just locking in repetition and then being able to A, repeat it, uh, repeat it and and, um, create more efficiencies to that repetition, as well as handing that system and process off to somebody else at one point, once it's perfected. So we started just really looking within, I think as business owners, at least for me, I know I get real stuck in the nitty gritty. Um, something I do a lot. I still am guilty of it. My team knows I apologize all the time. They're helping me with it is I'll be like, I'll just do that. You know what? It'll take me a few seconds. I'll just do that. And that's one of the most harmful, hurtful things for your operations if you're trying to scale to allow yourself to do. So Amy, my COO, still to this day, she's been with me. God, I can't can't even imagine that it's been like three or four, probably four years. Um, She's been with me early on. And still to this day, when I get into that mode, she is my voice of reason to say, how does that really serve you? Is that getting you to this, this CEO that you have scaled to that you want to be that this position you're in. Um, one of the, let me, let me actually explain what I mean by that. So oftentimes, and I'm going to switch gears a little bit, oftentimes in like our diet, cause it's January, right? I don't know when this is going to release, but as of recording, this is January. So like a lot of us might be still in that like new year's resolution mindset. Right. And so we'll set out to say, you know, I want to lose 12 pounds this year, one pound a month or whatever. And we'll go on a diet, right? We'll say we need to do more healthy things. We need to go jog more. But when you actually identify with something, it's much more, you can be much more successful than to just do things that other people who identify with that do. So a healthy person eats well, a fit person jogs, right? Whereas if you're just saying, oh, I'm a CEO and I just need to jog and eat better, instead of switching that mindset to saying, I'm a healthy CEO who likes to be fit and owning that identity, that's where the power and the the more success you will see is by actually creating a de- an identity with like a term or a title. And so what Amy very early on taught me was, okay, you want to be a million dollar CEO. So you are a million-dollar CEO. How would a million-dollar CEO structure her team? How does a million-dollar CEO hire her team? What does a million-dollar CEO do when she wakes up, right? 
you have to continuously to look at yourself and identify with that goal you have in mind, that person you are and want to be. Um, but you, you don't say, oh, I'm going to be a million dollar. I'm a million dollar CEO. I have to act like one. This is where we're going. Um, so to, like, like I said, to wrap your question up, it's you know, twofold. One, we got really inquisitive. We started looking introspectively at what was going on. And two, it was real mind shift, mind shifts, mindset shifts um, to putting myself in the shoes of, of where we were going. Yeah, absolutely. And who, who would you hire first? Like if you were, if you were doing it again, who is the critical piece to hire first? Is it the CFO or the, or the COO? You know, um, if you, for my personality, it worked well, uh, to do CFO first and COO first, um, because I am a grinder, right? But if you know right off the bat, like I've I've met with some amazing humans who are doing business because they've got, like I met a woman whose husband was going through an incredibly hard illness. She started an entire build business because she knew she needed flexibility. She's like, I need to only work 15 to 30 hours a week max because I need the rest of the time to be with my husband. And so in that situation, if you know yourself and you don't, a want to or B can't for whatever reason want to put that grind in at the beginning. I would say the COO. Um, right off the bat, I would say the COO. For me, the reason why I don't think I'd go back and change it is I scaled with my team really quickly, and so I wanted to be financially sound. I didn't. Ha we we started from the ground running. We had no you know startup funds, no grant money, nothing. I just started this and we've just built as we've built. So for me, knowing that I was willing to put that grit in, the CFO was great. Um, but structurally, hiring wise, having a COO mindset, I'd probably say would be first. I know that's kind of like two part answer, but know yourself, which whichever one, you know, you hear of you. I think that's what I would suggest. Yeah. And why did you need to put so much work in with the CFO? Is that because your is that because is that to get all the finances is there a lot of work involved in that in that process yeah so we're with you know especially early on we like i had shared earlier right we we really dabbled in both worlds right and we still do offer marketing but we don't advertise our marketing because it's exclusive for our branding clients but early on we hadn't had that distinguished that dis distinguished I don't know what word I want. We didn't have that deviation yet, right? Um, and so really quickly, you know, we have a lot of clients who at the time wanted to run ads and we needed to actually have some funds in our bank to be able to support some of those things. Also, um, you know, you have one client who comes on and they want a lot of different marketing support and that requires a lot of team. And if I then lose that client, you know, we talked about risks and how scary that is, but now all of a sudden I have a team who is expecting work um, and knowing myself the pressures that that would take if I didn't have the funds to keep the team alive in some way. I didn't want that pressure. Um, I also quit my business or excuse me, I quit my job. And so to me, while um, I'm blessed to have, you know, a dual income and blessed to have a husband who works and is as gritty as I am we relied on both incomes. And so knowing for me how important our financial soundness needed to be from the get-go, um, 
that's why that CFO hire was first. The forecasting that we did, um, really helping me price my price my products, uh, create different offers that appealed to different people, but still met our goals. That's some of the work that you can do by yourself, but it's easy to get into the nitty gritty of the doing and not slowing down to build the foundation. Um, that if I didn't have my CFO, we we probably would have struggled a lot longer. Yeah, it, it's fascinating that you've you've because you, you've applied like you've got the big business pieces on board first, which mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, I like I don't know many businesses who who do it the way you've done it. Like most people are like, oh, hire a VA. What what's your opinion on that? Like. Should you hire a VA? Like, because you know, people are doing all these tasks and they're doing like $10 an hour tasks, right? Get the $10 an hour tasks off your thing. Like, should you go VA first, then a CFO and then a COO? Or should you go CFO, COO first and then the VA? Like, what would be your thoughts on that if you were advising someone? Well, I mean, like I said, my my thoughts are those, those C-suite positions are going to be the if that's the direction you're going, if you know that this business is going to be a seven, eight figure business, like you, you really want to scale something, something serious and you want the long term. I think about the same mentality of building a house. Okay. You can build a house by just throwing sticks up, leaning up against each other, getting a roof on there. You know, will it look like a house form function, like a house protect you like a house? Sure. But if you didn't start with that solid concrete foundation where you're like, yeah, I know I want a wall here. And I know eventually we won't build out the garage yet, but I know I want the garage here and we won't have time for this cute bonus room, but man, we're going to have this bonus room. We're going to have a pool table, a huge theater, all that. The C-suite team members, it's like that foundation of where you're like, I know where I'm going right now. I'm not discrediting the value of a VA because trust me, I have done my, and I still do. I'm not going to put any pull the wool over anyone's eyes. I still catch myself doing the $10 an hour tasks. Absolutely. But again, I know myself and I know that in the wee hours of the night or whenever I need to, I'm going to come out and I'm going to do the work that needs to get done. And so it wasn't until last year that I actually hired um, my first two full-time employees. So it took several years of me fulfilling a lot of the quote unquote $10 an hour tasks until I finally was like, okay, like I need my, my Amy, Amy, my COO, she was in my ear. She's like, you got to get out of those tasks. You got to get out of those tasks. So, um, so yeah, not knocking the VA. I think that if even everyone I think wants to be the next Amazon, I, I discourage that mentality, but everyone, you know, does. And so if that's where you're at, really, like if you do hire a VA, really make sure that whatever that VA is doing is truly allowing you to do the high revenue C-suite type things. If you hire a VA and you're having them just do tasks that aren't bringing in revenue or aren't freeing you up to do revenue type tasks, you're just going to sit idle together, right? That VA needs to free you to get you to the point where then that next hire can be that C-suite. I don't know. I hope that makes sense. I'm no expert in hiring. This is just how it's gone with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's I think that's awesome. And, and does it make it like like from a hiring that COO first? Because I've got a, 
a saying because I I, I uh, used to work with the VA and I, I've now got a saying you know, you've got to you got to earn the right to almost hire right and I I see if you have a COO you're almost earning the right because you're setting up the operation systems you're setting up the onboarding you're setting up the systems mm-hmm. you're not just like hey a VA and then you flick them a task every now and then type of thing which yes. I think happens quite a lot would would you say that there Based on that, would you say it makes more sense to go COO first and then VA? Yeah, based on that, for sure. Um, a good VA, uh, depending on if you're hiring direct or utilizing a virtual agency um, to help you hire the VA, um, seek out somebody who recognizes that that happens, right? That was one thing that I really said. I want someone who is eager and driven. Those were some of the biggest words, eager and driven. Because I know that I'm going to get in the weeds. I'm going to be in back-to-back podcast meetings, speaking events, what have you. And I know that I need somebody who is going to be driven and eager that when I'm a little MIA and my team knows like from onboarding, from, from interview, right? I let them know, what would you do if there's a task that needs to be done and I'm MIA? You've called me, you've texted me, you've slacked me and emailed me and I'm still not getting you the answer you need. What do you do, Right. I really made sure that I knew that they needed to have drive and eager and resourcefulness because that's the type of position they're fulfilling. So um, I don't know if I'm answering that question very well, but that's that's some of the things that I've looked at when hiring a VA is I don't want to just throw them like some organizing tasks here and there because um, A, they're going to get bored of me. They're going to get bored of what they're doing. Um, and part of my value, so much of my values is about being enthusiastic. Like VIM stands for high energy enthusiasm. And so my top value for myself, my team and my clients is I want you to love and be enthusiastic about everything we're doing together. Is it work? Yes. But if, if it's in something you're enthusiastic about, we'll keep coming back to it. Right. Um, so yeah, that's my thoughts on that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And what do you think it is that makes you at Vim unique in terms of like obviously you've like you've obviously got the operations in place, which is which is key, right? At the same time, from a marketing perspective, because I see it as it's like a car, right? If you've got a an engine but no wheels, you're not going anywhere. So if you're good at operations, but you're no good at marketing, or you're not going anywhere, and vice versa, uh, you're gonna mm-hmm. you're gonna stall yourself. So what do you think it is that makes you unique that's allowed you to expand from a marketing perspective? I mean, I think I like to think it's that I walk the talk. Uh, you know, we work really hard on supporting our brands that they get to be authentic. They get to be real. They look stunning. They show up aesthetically in a beautiful way that's empowered and, and built with intention. Um, and we do the same. You know, when I talk to a client, I tell them, listen, this is me. I know I'm a lot. I know this is a lot of energy right now. If you can, can't can handle this 45-minute consult, if this feels like a lot for you, we probably shouldn't work together, right? I've always been the person who just says, you know, I, I even had a client who came on and he was not an ideal client for me. He was throwing throwing his money around like crazy. And essentially what he wanted was he was like, I just want you to make it look sexy, make it look expensive and get it to sell off the shelf. And I had to say, you know, you're just not in alignment with the real work we do, you know? And so 
we walk the talk. We really make sure that we show up with energy. That doesn't mean I'm bubbly and perfect all the time. You know, my, uh, one of my other values is peace. And so making sure that we are balancing who we are and what we value both internally, personally, and for our clients. Um, and we just are authentically consistent with that. And I think in a, in, for being a branding agency, that's what businesses yearn for. They're like, I just, I hate all these trends that are going on. I don't know which one to follow. And we have all these platforms are popping on. I don't know where to be. People misunderstand me. They think I do this. You know, people are turned off when they work with me because I'm quiet. Right. So people have all these fears about what people say, think, and see from them. And then when they see someone who, who's just owning that, they're like, I want that. I want that for my brand. I want to own it. I want people to feel it, see it right off the bat. Stuff can do that for me. Vim can do that for me. Um, and so that's, I think that's been the biggest thing is just really walking the talk and delivering that for other people. Yeah. And what, what, what is in your perspective, what is, because I, I look at branding in many ways uh, i've got a friend who's in in branding i said branding has done a really terrible job of branding itself because uh, because <laughs> people are still confused about what branding is right so in your in your view what is what is branding yeah branding is your reputation it's how what is the Maya angelo quote this is uh, people won't remember what you do or say they'll remember how you make them feel Okay. Maya Angelou was basically explaining what branding is, right? It's how people perceive you. It's how people feel you. It's how you make people feel. It's what people say behind your back, whether good or bad. That's what branding is. And as far as like the tangible tactical things, I break it down with, with our name. So VIM stands for visual, intentional, integrated marketing. So branding, the Vim way, is your visuals. Everything you see, logo, colors, fonts, the photos, the way you show up on film, the way you show up to the world, right? Patterns, shapes, um, videography, all of those things are the visuals, right? We, we, you know, I'm never going to discredit that a logo is important, right? Because what are we as humans? What do we do? We're visual creatures. We eat with our eyes. We judge books by their cover, even though we're literally told not to. And no matter what we th- we say, we see or don't see when we judge people, we see people. Our brain makes micro judgments, immediate judgments on people, places, things, opportunities. We, we make this, ooh, is that person safe? Do I want to walk up to them? Does that store look enticing? Do I want to walk into it, right? Ooh, does that alleyway look um, scary or not? Our brain is making these immediate decisions for us and judgments, no matter if we say we don't. So when it comes to your brand, your visuals are truly what leads you, right? But then we got got to dive deeper into the intention of why those visuals are created, right? If I want to create a spooky, scary house at Halloween time, and I want my visuals to get people scared, I want them to think it's a risk to walk into the house. I want them to hear and feel things that make them on edge. That's all intentional, but it's bleeding into my visuals. You have that same power with your brand. You want someone to see your brand and you want them to know right off the bat that you need to have a big pocketbook to buy those shoes. We need to make sure they feel that and see that from every aspect of your brand, 
right? If you have a super feminine brand and you want to know men, this is not for you. You want to repel the men so that the women are like, this is my lane. This is my store. We can do that with your visuals, but only if we tap into the intentional side of how we truly want to attract or repel people. So visuals is everything you see. I'll wrap it up. Intention is everything that the depth, the depth of our brand, who we are, what we do, why we do it, our tone, our personality, all of that. And then the I and the M is how we integrate our visuals and intention into our marketing. That is branding the Vim way. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And and in terms of like, do you go into like one of the things I do as a copywriter, I have a process where I go through a thing called a copy strategy guide and I'll dive into like, you know, like the basic avatar stuff, like the emotional hot buttons, the core story, the unique selling proposition, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their process, all of that sort of thing. And I think particularly one of the things I find particularly fascinating is like that, that core story and that unique selling proposition. It's just like, it just, I know it when I get it. I'm like, oh, that's who that person is. And I imagine you're doing a lot of that sort of work as well to really, it's not just like, yes, the image comes out and the imagery, but it's based on a lot of, uh, I know like with copy, for example, you'll do do 40% of your time you spend on the research, right? Before you even start writing. I imagine it's a lot like that. Like you don't just go, Hey, let's do a, let's start putting up pretty pictures. There's a lot of depth before that happens. I'm guessing. Absolutely. You know, um, the thing I like to remind people is again, we're visual creatures, but what are we often doing? We're reading copy, right? We're reading a sales page. We're reading a book right now. When you're reading a book, all of a sudden you open the pages and the narrator starts explaining that Emily is out in the field out in Nebraska and it's a hot summer day. Now, all of a sudden, every single listener, yourself included, Scott, every single one of us just pictured Emily. What color hair does she have? I didn't tell you, but she's there for you, right? What's her family like? Is she poor? Is she rich? I didn't tell you that, but you started visualizing things based off of your own experiences and your own knowledge. So to your point of how powerful that research and that copy is, we're creating visuals with all of that as well with the things we talk about. And so when it comes to the work we do with your brand, you know, a lot of times when people are hearing and reading some of the first things from you, we want to connect with them, right? We don't want to just say, hey, come buy our cheeseburger, right? We want to find out first, are you hungry? You yes. know, I want to tell you about the the 7% fat that that's going to make you, your tongue start saturating because you're like, oh gosh, that sounds amazing. I love a good juicy, greasy burger. I don't know. I'm making stuff up here, but we have to, have to start talking to them and connecting with them um, and make them realize, okay, I do want a cheeseburger. Okay. I am hungry. I didn't even realize I was hungry. You know, I do love a cheeseburger with shredded lettuce, not iceberg lettuce, right? Whatever the things are. Those are the powerful things that when you research who you're talking to and then you talk to them in a connective, connective-based way, A, they'll start realizing, okay, I'm into this. Like this is this is for me. And B, they'll speak that same language back to you. Instead of saying, man, I was hungry and I had a cheeseburger, they'll say, you gotta listen, you gotta hear about this cheeseburger. I was so hungry. I started salivating the moment I walked in. The menus, like the grease was falling off of it. I don't know why I'm going with grease here, guys, but maybe I'm hungry. Um, but you know, people start mirroring and 
speaking on behalf of your brand when you speak to them like that. Um, And so there's just so much, clearly I could geek out all day about this, but yes, to your point, there is so much research, so much copy that goes into that intentional side and influences our visual side that if you guys tap into the power of, I call it controlling the narrative. When you control the narrative, you have so much power that you can unlock with your branding. And I don't mean that in an icky, snaky, like snake oil way, like my that one client who wanted me to just make it sexy and make it sell. I'm talking about that true heart-centric, really tapping into what is important for you and your consumers and making sure they see that and feel it. That's the power of what we do. Yeah, that's... um you know, amazing, amazing. I, I like the, uh, I don't know if you've, you've come across any of the, the mnemonics, the memory stuff, but uh, it sort of confirms a lot of what you're saying. So like memory science, uh, and there's a book called, I think it's called Walking with Einstein. And uh, he, talk, he talks a lot about memory science and mnemonics is like one of the main things that they use, like to remember, to do crazy things like, you know, to be able to, you know, look at a thousand cards and then to be able to recite them. And it's all based on visuals. So mm-hmm. if you're going to the shops, just a simple example, and you want to, yeah, you need to get milk and bread and, and uh, yeah, and eggs, then you might, yeah, imagine, you know, a, yeah, a dancing, um, yeah, a dancing bread loaf, you know, jumping into a, th- yeah, jumping into a swimming pool of milk and then, yeah, someone, someone, you know, throwing eggs, at, eggs. The, at the bread. And because that's a visual in your head, mm-hmm. it's like, it's very hard to get that out of your head and, and forget it. But it, it ties into a lot of what you're saying with, with branding is that we remember visuals. There's no way you can remember, like, that's only three, right? But if we, if we wanted to remember, see, you probably remember it, but if you wanted to remember a hundred things and you can create a visual story, then it's memorable, mm-hmm. but it's very hard to go, yeah, sultanas and apples and a yeah, hundred yeah. like things of that in your head. So I think that really ties in and backs up what you're saying about the the importance of uh, of visuals in in branding. Because a lot of a lot of people from I come from a very direct response world originally, and a lot of people in the direct response world are like, yeah, like uh, branding. It it's do you know what I mean? They almost dis branding but but yeah like they'll they'll discredit branding but the more I think that's a that's a real mistake because it's like it's combining you know the more you the more elements you combine it's so powerful and the visual just it can't be ignored because it's so it's so critical so that's um I've got one one I guess last question for you um or there might be one more but one one key question I wanted to ask you was in terms of your, in terms of the identity, which you mentioned earlier, the importance of shifting your identity to build that seven figure business, how important do you think it is to all of this? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's one, it's, it was incredibly important and it's a constant. It's not like you do it once and, oh yeah, I got that identity, right? You have to continue to walk the talk. And so I think it's incredibly important. The the big testament, and I know this has been shared a lot, but it just goes back to how true it can be for you is, um, oh my gosh, why am I blinking? Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey, you know, he wrote himself that check. If you've never heard the story, when he was young, before he got famous, he wrote himself a check for a million dollars. And he knew he couldn't cash it. He didn't have a million dollars in the bank. 
But he identified as a millionaire. He was like, I'm going to be a millionaire. So he put that visualization. He identified that that's something I'm going to be able to cash. And that was a, a huge driving force to help him continue to maintain, have, and act and walk in that, identi in, in a, in that identity. Um, and so I do think it's incredibly important. Um, I know it is. Uh, I would, and, and it's also important for yourself to be able to influence that with the rest of the team internally and the people you're connecting with. You know, it's different for each business and their relationship with their consumers. But for me, I, I kind of let that mindset trickle off uh, from me onto them because the entrepreneurs I'm working with and the businesses I'm working with, they are feeling the imposter syndrome at times too. They have self-doubt as well. Um, and so really I, I help empower people through their brand. That's that, that introspective and in, intentional piece. We have to look within. I, um, I often say it's all about getting what's here in your head, here in your heart and here in your gut out, right? How many times as entrepreneurs do we have all this floating around in our head, heart, and gut, and we never get to get it out. Or maybe somebody gets unloaded once over here. And then one day I talk about this over here, but we never just get to own it all in one place. That becomes kind of your mindset um, brand Bible of sorts. And you can continue to bring it back to it to get you back into that mindset. Yep. Look at, these are what I value. This is what I believe in. This is what I do. This is why I am a million dollar CEO. You can keep coming back to that. So it's, it's absolutely important. It's a huge part of branding. People think, oh, well, why do you need to know my story for, to pick a color for me? There's so much intention to those visuals and we need to know more about you and tap into that mindset first. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's awesome. And yeah, so, so we've covered so much amazing uh, content today, Steph, I think from the, the whole thing about, you know, hiring the, the CFO and the, and the, and the CMO yeah. first, you know, the importance of identity, the importance of visuals in branding and how, you know, how deep that that goes and, you know, just your, your incredible journey. If people want to, you know, if someone's listened to this and they want to find you, reach out to you? What's the best way for, for them to do that? Yeah. So if you want to get Vim, get a hold of me, get a hold of Vim, it's getvim.com. So remember V, v as in uh, visual, intentional integrated marketing. So two eyes in Vim. Um, so at get Vim on social. So Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, you can find me there. Um, I'm the most human and present on Instagram. So if you want to connect with me, um, I do have amazing teams supporting our Instagram account, but I'm still human and I show up there every day. It's, it's an addiction. Um, and so if you want me as a human, definitely find me on Instagram. But um, www.getvim.com is the best way to look at our offers. We have self-paced programs. We have live programs. Um, we do one-to-one -one work. And so um, to kind of get a to peruse the offerings, uh, the website would probably be the best part to start. If you want to just have this kind of energy and community in your life, um, find us on social. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Steph. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, and, and uh, you've just been an amazing guest. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate having me on the show. And I, I just hope if you walked away with nothing else from today, I just hope you feel a little energy and enthusiasm and, and it perks you up just a tiny bit for today. But hopefully there was lots of other golden nuggets too. Yeah, no, thank you. 
All right. Scott Bywater here, and thank you for listening to the Seven Figure Summit podcast. If you're a successful seven-figure entrepreneur who'd like to share your journey on this podcast, please visit podcast.copywritingthatsells.com.au. If you got something out of this interview, I'd love it if you could share this episode on social media. Likewise, if you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them to let them know about the show and include the hashtag Seven Figure Summit. There's nothing I love more than seeing your posts and guest suggestions. Now, we're regularly putting out new episodes and content, so to make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to my team and I. If you'd like to connect, go to copywritingthatsells.com.au or follow me on LinkedIn or Instagram under Scott Bywater. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.